everyone. Uh, we're now going to read today's passages. The first one is 2 Samuel 11 on page 266 on the Black Pew Bibles. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw, a he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messages to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strong, where the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had said to him, sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord.
Today's second reading is from Psalm 51. It's on page 489 of the Pew Bibles, if you'd like to follow along. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. good to be here with you guys. Opening the Bible is one of the most, um, the greatest privileges in my life. Um, but today we've got an extra special blessing of the gifted, brilliant Rowena, who's going to come up and tackle this passage alongside me. So you're going to want to keep your Bibles open to 2 Samuel 11. Um, we want to just consistently express that God's made us complementary men and women, and we have the diversity of voices that we need to hear because that's how we're going to see Jesus in his fullness. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite Ro up and we're, we're going to hear God speak. Father, please, would you send your spirit now to fill us, to shape us, to transform us? Would you convict us of our sin, and would you lead us into the immeasurable grace of Jesus? Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It is a joy and a privilege to be here this morning. Um, I have to confess that prior to this sermon series on David, I used to see him as a man who, yes, had his flaws, but was essentially a beautiful, creative, artistic man who loved God with all his heart and who God used to do amazing things, a poet. Um, but I know some of that's true, but after being here and listening to the series, I've realized that as well as that, David was also a man who was capable of extreme, ruthless violence incredible dishonesty, and from today we've learned that David was a man who also at times couldn't control himself, a man who gave in to lust, which in turn led him to commit murder. 
David was a broken and sinful man who was a failure in so many ways. But I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more conscious I am of my own capacity to sin. And that all of us, every single one of us, are hopelessly flawed, hopelessly weak, and capable of committing any kind of sin. Now I know that's a cheerful way to begin a Sunday morning. Um, But I also take great hope from David's story. Because throughout history, we also know that David was a man after God's own heart. He was a man that God chose to forgive and redeem and restore time and time again. And not only that, he was a man that God continually chose to bless in the face of David's deliberate and calculated and appalling sins. I take hope from David's story because it reminds us of the scandalous grace of God. How beautiful is our God? How forgiving? How merciful? How wonderful is this God who asks us to call him Father? David also wrote in Psalm 103, verse 12 to 13, that as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, David is writing this from experience. He knows the depths of God's mercy and grace. And we can take heart that if God can forgive and restore and still use a broken man like David, then he can and he will do the same for us. You got your Bibles open to Samuel 11. I think the thing that shines out at the beginning is that sin creeps in when we neglect God and the state of our own souls. How does it begin? You got verse one. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. You check out chapter 10, and God is blessing David with victory after victory after victory. He is coming good on his promise to be with him and to bring blessing. And so David, as he's starting to receive these blessings from God, takes his foot off the pedal, hits the brakes, and decides to take a vacation. When all the other kings are out leading their armies, as they were called to do, what's he doing? He's decided to stay in Jerusalem. And this is so true. We often encounter sin after blessing. Why? Because when we receive the blessing of God, when we sit in a space of prosperity and goodness and life is nice and cruisy, what's our inclination? We forget God. We just start to do life on our own. We enjoy the good things. And it's easy for us to then creep into those places where we shouldn't be. David here has abdicated his role as the leader of Israel to just enjoy the blessings of God, and that's where his sin began. But as it moves on, you see that he starts to sin through boredom. You know, he's hanging out in Jerusalem, but verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, and from that roof, he saw a woman bathing. Heading up onto the roof is like the ancient equivalent of scrolling Instagram. Like, you're just kind of sitting out there trying to peer into people's windows and observe their private lives. Like, this is not a place of of goodness and, and, and joy, you know? Like, this is him being so bored with nothing to do with all the privileges of kingship and all the blessings of victory, coming up and just gazing upon naked women on the roof, right? He's, he's sinning in his boredom, and I think that's so true that, that it's when we, uh, are, I guess, um, we're not occupied with the beautiful calling that God has given us, that's when sin is attractive. But when we see Jesus 
and we pour out our lives for him and we're going hard for the kingdom of God and we want to serve him and love him, when we encounter sin, it doesn't look as pretty and beautiful as it once did. David's neglected the calling of God and so has fallen into this place where sin is easy, sin is accessible, and sin is attractive. And lastly, you see his sin in temptation. He's, he's sitting up on that roof, looking at this naked woman, and he's just like, you know what, I've got to have her. So he sends a servant to go and talk to her, and the servant comes back, and you kind of get the sense from the servant that he's trying to stop the bad thing from happening. He's like, yeah, yeah, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Like, she's already married. Don't do it, dude. Don't do it. And he's, whatever, I'm the king. He just sends him back, pulls her over, and he sleeps with her. Now, we find ourselves falling into sin when we find ourselves in places and spaces where we are able to be tempted. I've got a great quote here from Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a brilliant man of God. It's a little long, but I think it's worth it. Let me read it for you. With his irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. In this moment, this is important, in this moment, God is quite unreal to us. And Satan doesn't here fill us with a hatred of God, but with a forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and the will in deepest darkness. It is here that everything in me rises up against the word of God. Therefore, the Bible teaches that in times of temptation to our flesh, there is one command, flee, (laughs) run away. Flee youthful lust, flee worldly temptation. If you're feeling under pressure and on the verge of something, an emotion welling up within you, what does the Bible say? Run. No, human being has within them the strength to resist such overpowering emotions. Isn't that so true? That when we're faced with temptation, God just disappears. Trying to be strong in your willpower and fight sin is not the way to do it. The way is to flee sin entirely and to remove ourselves from temptation That is the mistake that David made, and that's the mistake we fall into. Sin begins when we neglect God and the state of our souls. So when I read the story of David and Bathsheba, it's with a sad sense of familiarity. There are many things at play in this story, um, but some of the conclusions we may want to draw, particularly about Bathsheba, are probably not based from evidence in the text. But what is undeniable in this story is David's abuse of power and his exploitation of those who don't have it. This is a story that we see throughout the Bible, throughout history and throughout time. It's a story as old as time itself. It's a story of the powerful taking advantage of the weak. It's the story of someone in a high and trusted position abusing that position in order to get what they want. Now, I'm showing my age here, but about 20 years ago, there was a Christian band around called the Newsboys. I don't know if anyone knows the Newsboys, but they wrote this great song called Stay Strong, and in that song, we have the lyrics, you're in the moment now when all that you've been blessed with is not enough. Here's where the ground gets loose. Here's where the devils call your bluff. Exactly. David had everything, and it wasn't enough. Now, in the past few years, we have seen a huge global reaction to the kind of power imbalance depicted in this story across all aspects of society, in the entertainment world, in the sporting arena, in politics, in education, and sadly, even the church. We begin to see the voiceless and the powerless stand up for themselves, men and women, and speak out 
against those who've abused their power. And we really hope and pray that if there are people here today who have been victims of this kind of power abuse, that you would feel safe and secure enough to be able to speak up about that, that you would know that God sees and God hears and God is able to comfort and restore and heal whatever has been lost or broken or destroyed. Well, here in the story of David and Bathsheba, we have a woman who has been denied a voice, a woman who has been stripped of agency, the ability to make her own decisions, a woman who was taken by one in power, used and then sent back as if she was nothing more than a product to be consumed, a woman who lost her husband, her reputation and her child, all because the most powerful man in Israel was bored. He wasn't where he was supposed to be and he decided, decided to abuse his position in the worst way possible. Now, there is no evidence in the text to say that Bathsheba was guilty. We learn that she was bathing in order to purify herself from her monthly uncleanness and the writer takes great pains to remind us of this. She wasn't out there bathing in order to seduce anyone. She was acting in accordance with the law so that she could return to God and quite likely believe she was safe and secure. But further evidence of um, her innocence in the eyes of God comes in 2 Samuel 12, which Nick will talk about later, and we saw acted out before us. We see Nathan the prophet's rebuking of David. He refers to Bathsheba as a little ewe lamb, and you can't get a figure more helpless and dependent than that. Nathan was speaking for God, and in God's eyes, Bathsheba was not the guilty party. But I also think it's important to remember that even though this is the story of David's adultery, this is in no way a sin that only affects men. It affects men and women. And studies have shown that men and women do commit adultery for different reasons. In a very simplistic breakdown, um, men usually commit adultery for physical reasons and women for emotional ones. But we would all know people for whom the opposite of that is also true. But one thing we know throughout scripture is God has a very serious view of adultery and that in the Bible, it's often associated with death and destruction. Now, again, I'm showing my age, but one of my favourite films a few years ago was a movie called The English Patient. I don't know if anyone here has seen that film. I used to love that. I would watch it over and over again. I thought it was the most romantic story ever. But when I watched it later as a Christian, I realised it was a terrible story. It's basically about a man who has an affair with a, with a married woman, and it's set against an exotic North African backdrop with seductive music and beautiful cinematography. But in the end, all three lead characters die because the rightfully jealous husband flies and crashes his plane with his wife in the back into the desert, killing them both. The other character dies after being horribly burned when his plane is shot out of the sky as a consequence of going after another man's wife. But it was really only as a Christian, I think, with a Christian filter and God's spirit that I was able to see that this isn't really a great story at all, but hundreds of thousands of people, as well as the people who gave it nine Academy Awards, um, thought that this was the kind of story that we should all want. This is the kind of love that we should all want for ourselves, you know, if we just forget the death and the dying side of things. But I think movies and novels and music, however much they appeal to our heart, have a lot to answer for when it comes to portraying love and sex as things that we ought to go after, no matter what the consequence. Well, I have a very dear friend who a few years ago suffered and paid the price for her husband's adultery, and she has given me permission to share this story. I sincerely hope that I never again have to stand alongside someone and witness the devastation and the desolation that that brought into her life. She was ripped to shreds. 
And she speaks about um, her husband's actions ripping away her sense of identity, her security, and even believing that she had a place in this world. She also spoke of her inability to understand how one woman could do this to another. This woman knew my friend's husband was married, but she pursued him anyway. The only good thing she'll say about it is, thank God, literally, that we didn't have kids because that would have been a whole other world of pain and devastation. We all have the capacity to be tempted in this way, and I wish that we could see more realistic portrayals of the effects of adultery, how it actually plays out in the lives of those affected by it. But as Christians, though, as Nick said, we don't have to battle this kind of temptation on our own. We have been given the grace of God and his Holy Spirit, and we read in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God never allows us to be tempted beyond what we can endure. We've also prayed the Lord's Prayer, including the verse, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So it must be possible, if the Bible says so, that God can do this. Some of you know that sometimes I'm involved in the theatre world, um, and it can be hard to be a Christian in acting circles. Um, You get very close to people very quickly when you're rehearsing and performing together, and it can be hard to maintain your integrity. And so I have found it's very helpful for me to pray before I enter into anything. Lord, please help me to guard my heart. Please keep me from temptation and keep me from making any stupid mistakes. And I felt, I know that that's actually what he's done. And I'm very grateful that he's been able to protect me in that realm because it's incredibly difficult. Adultery is not inevitable. It is not something that just happens. We can guard against it just as we can guard against any sin. And I'm going to hand back to Nick who's going to talk about that. Adultery is not inevitable, but neither is any sin. Um, This side of the resurrection, we're standing as people who have been filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives within us, right? We have the power of God available to us. We have the freedom that Christ promised to bring. You got Romans 8.30 says, Who the Son sets free is free indeed. Galatians 5.16, Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desire of the flesh. But like a cancer at its beginning, it needs to be cut out before it spreads and compounds and snowballs. Like a garden that's being choked out by weeds and thorns, it needs the daily attention of of uprooting that which is bad and, and cultivating what is good. And so these three ways that David shows us to fight sin, I think are so important for us. We need to dwell closely with God. We need to dwell closely with God. It's David's drifting from the calling and the closeness of God that led him to this place. When we are close to God, sin seems so repugnant because we see his holiness. When we're distant from God, sin seems to be something we might like to indulge in every now and again because we know we're forgiven by Jesus. It's totally fine. We want to dwell closely with God. Secondly, We want to live after the purposes of God. If God has saved you from your sin in the name of Jesus, he's got a calling on your life to live for him, to serve him in whatever space that is. When we neglect that, it's because we're fixated on ourself. And when we're fixated on ourself, sin is something that is useful to bring us the things that we want. But when we're fixed upon Christ... And living that out in the space that he's called us to, that's when we suddenly don't want sin anymore. We only want more of Jesus. And lastly, we need to practically position ourselves away from temptation. I don't know your story, but you do. You know your heart. You know what you wrestle with. 
you know those things that have their hooks in you. And it's up to us to take significant practical steps to put those things aside. If you've just been um, flirting with sin in your life because it's too hard to do anything about it, this is a moment where God is calling us to wake up. It's time to move sin over there and stand over here. It's time to get yourself away from those, those things that will pull you back in and to make conclusive decisions to live solely for Christ. Those three things again, dwell closely with God, live after the purposes of God, practically position yourself away from temptation. So I think what is so sobering about the story of David and Bathsheba is how clearly it shows the rapid escalation of sin, how one sin leads to another and another, and then you get a snowball effect. Nick spoke about how sin needs to be cut out of our lives before it takes root, and we see that for a long time David had not been careful of keeping his heart um, free of sin. Now at the outset, it wasn't David's plan to murder Uriah. I mean, he wasn't planning on telling the truth, but his plan A was to get Uriah home from the battlefield in order that he would go and sleep with his wife so that the child she bore would be seen as Uriah's. But unfortunately, this didn't go according to plan at all. David wasn't factoring in Uriah's loyalty and his indignation that he would be asked such a thing while the battle was still raging and the Ark of the Covenant was still in a tent. So David moves to plan B and tries to get Uriah drunk, so drunk so that he would forget his objections and sleep with his wife, and then get David off the hook. But again, this doesn't work. Uriah is a pretty stubborn guy. So David, thinking that he had exhausted all of his options, moves to plan C, which is the cold-blooded murder of Uriah, a man who had done nothing but be loyal to David. I um, was reminded of this, that in 1 Chronicles 11.41, Uriah was one of David's mighty men. He wasn't just a faceless <clears throat> warrior out there that David didn't know. He was someone who was incredibly close to David, and David did this anyway. It's such a tragic story because this is also avoidable. This story was avoidable. At every point, David had a chance to step back, to say no, to repent, to ask forgiveness, to confess, but he didn't do this. And again, we might find ourselves asking, well, how can a man like this be seen as a man after God's own heart? But in Psalm 51 that we heard earlier, we do see the repentance and the brokenness and the godly sorrow that David was capable of experiencing. It gives us an indication that he was capable of great soft-heartedness toward God. His heart, his heart hadn't heartened toward God, even though his conscience had been dulled. Now, we read of God's forgiveness of David and his eventual bequeathing a son, Solomon, to him. And he would be an ancestor of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when I read things like that, I can't help but shake my head in wonder at this incredible God that we serve, this forgiving God. And in his economy, as it says in Romans 5.20, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And this um, message today is not meant as a condemnation to anybody who is struggling with or has committed any kind of sin. The reason that this story is in the Bible is that we would all take heart and know that if God can forgive and redeem and still use and bless a man like David, then he can certainly do that for us. And that song that I quoted before from the Newsboys ends with the lines, get up, there's further to go. Get up, there's more to be done. Get up, this witness is sure. Get up, this race can be won. Now back to Bathsheba, what is so wonderful about her story, however tragic it was in the beginning, is that once more we see our God, Bathsheba's God, the God who sees us, bring something beautiful out of this situation. 
As I said, we learned um, that Bathsheba <clears throat> eventually bears another son by David called Solomon. And toward the end of the book in, in Samuel, 2 Samuel 12, we see that, sorry, toward the end of Samuel, we see that Bathsheba conspired with Nathan the prophet to win the throne for Solomon. And she occupied a powerful position as the queen mother. Not only this, we also know that wondrously through her lineage would come the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I asked a friend of mine who loves to write if she would write me something about Bathsheba, and she wrote me a really powerful poem, and I don't have time to read all of it, but I'm going to read the end. She wrote it as if Bathsheba were praying, after she'd been married to David, but after she'd lost her child. Bathsheba's prayer. A son. God, please, a son from my bloodline who builds people, not thrones. A son who asks us what we need. A son who cares about how we feel. His privilege, forfeitable, and his fight for the underprivileged. And people will know him as the son of God who was always a friend of the unseen. A son, God please, a son from my bloodline, a people, God please, a people like your son. And as his followers, as his people, God calls us to be those who stand up for the weak, for those to seek justice, for those who can't seek it for themselves, and to identify with those that nobody else cares about. Now, we don't know what Bathsheba actually prayed, but we can be so encouraged by the way that God graced her with immeasurable purpose and took something shameful and scandalous and wove it into the tapestry of our own salvation. Now, where Bathsheba did not have a voice, God allowed the later years of her, of her life to be ones of significant power and influence. God allowed Bathsheba to be included in the lineage of Jesus, the one who would be that very voice for the voiceless ones just like her. Romans 5.20, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. I want you to just recap with me what David was like. He didn't just stuff it up here and there. He was a calculated, cold-blooded sinner, right? He, he begins with, with lying. He then takes his leadership and abdicates it and gives it over to others. He didn't only commit adultery, but he thoroughly abused his power as a, as a, a king to abuse this vulnerable woman and ruthlessly ruined her life by murdering her husband, not only murdering her husband, but in the process, sacrificing a bunch of other soldiers to make sure that he died so that now other families don't have fathers and husbands and they're broken and shattered. And yet there's grace for David. Isn't that beautiful? Scandalous, yes, but hope for you and me. How is God's grace shown to David? Well, chapter 12, Vaughan beautifully acted it out before, but I'll quickly read it for you. 2 Samuel 12, Nathan comes. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the travelers who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. This is where it gets funny and ironic and sad all at the same time. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then David said to David, sorry, Nathan said to David, 
you are the man. That's you. That would just be be crushing and heartbreaking. That is grace to David, because in all of his immeasurable sin, God is beckoning him to come back with an immeasurable grace, an immeasurable love. And that's why we get Psalm 51. I don't know if you want to flip there with me, but I think you need to write this down and come back to it later. This needs to be a psalm frequently on our lips. David writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. If David can turn back and receive grace and be washed clean, so can you. And we just know that so much more. This is a man after God's own heart, not because he's perfect, but because he is soft in heart and turns back when God calls him. But he's here to point us to another man after God's own heart who's completely perfect. He's supposed to point us to Jesus. Jesus is the king who was abused to love the vulnerable, while this man abused the vulnerable with his power. This King David, who murders a man for his own good, gives way to King Jesus, who is murdered for our good. His purity covers our adultery. His death covers our murder. His perfection meets David, Bathsheba, you and me, right in the middle of our mess and invites us to come in as he takes our sin upon his shoulders. And so we can pray Psalm 51 and walk away with the load taken off, completely forgiven, even if you're an adultering, murder, lying, whatever you've done, right? If it's true for David, it's true for us. So today, it's the call, turn back to God. Repent, turn away from your sin and receive mercy. Not because David was after God's own heart, but because Jesus was, and he was perfectly. Now, this is, there's been a lot that we've covered today. I just want to stop and pray for that, but I just want to remind you again, if anything has been stirred up in you that you want to talk through or pray about, Rowena and I will be up here up the front, and we'd love to chat with you. We'd love to pray with you. But right now, let's just go to the Lord, let him have his way. Almighty God, in all of your holiness, in all of your glory, in all of your splendor, you still show love. You still show mercy to those who are against you. We are so thankful to you that you see us like you saw David and you call us back to you. You sent Jesus to be the perfect David, the one who took upon himself everything that David did to others and he did it so that we could be free. Lord, please be healing us of our shame and our guilt. Please be helping us to walk from this place in faithfulness to you. And we pray, God, that you would just every single day call us back, call us back to you to know you, to love you, and to receive you. We pray this all for the glory of Jesus.